Once again, it's good to see each and every one out this morning. Glad that we have this opportunity to study together from the Word of God. We're going to begin this morning in Matthew 5, and notice just a few things that Jesus had to say here, beginning in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. There were several in Jesus' day and age, as is evidenced here by what Jesus says, that were accusing him of trying to just disregard what the law said. They, on a number of occasions, tried to get him to say the wrong thing so that they could point to the law and say, ah, you're a blasphemer. You are trying to make yourself something you're not. And, of course, they did the same with the apostles after him. But Jesus explains here that he did not come in any way to destroy what had been already established by Moses, of course, through God, through the old law, but rather he had come to fulfill that law in every way. He came to fulfill it perfectly. Now, we know in one sense, of course, he did so by living according to that law perfectly. He was without sin. But also, as we think about all of the different shadows that existed in the old law, and the Hebrew writer has much to say about how the old law contained shadows of the new, we see that Jesus became the perfect realization of all of those shadows, the perfect antitype of those various types. And we're going to study some of that this morning in our lesson. The title is a Greek word, tetelestai, and that is a word that Jesus uttered while he was on the cross, which is more commonly understood in English as it is finished. Jesus, when he died on the cross, shortly before he gave up his spirit, uttered the words, it is finished. And what he meant by that is, His work was now complete. And part of that work was, again, to fulfill that old law. And so we're going to think this morning about the different kinds of sacrifices that were offered under the law of Moses. And we often talk about the sacrifice that took place on the Day of Atonement. That was something that happened once a year under the Hebrew system. But we're also mindful of the fact that sacrifices were offered daily at the tabernacle and in the temple to follow. And we don't talk as much about those sacrifices as we do seemingly about the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But we're going to focus on those this morning. And so there are five in total, and we take 
uh, our information about these different sacrifices from the book of Leviticus, and actually the first seven chapters of Leviticus. So if you want to turn there, we're going to read all of that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> don't, don't fall asleep on me. Uh, I will be referencing where we are, uh, where we are taking our information from as we go through uh, the various points of our lesson, but we're not going to read the entirety of the text of Leviticus 1 through 7 because I don't think many of you would last, uh, maybe myself included there. It can be very uh, tedious to read through that, but nonetheless, it is good for us to note the information that is there because there are lessons for us to notice. So the first three sacrifices that we're going to talk about were offerings or sacrifices of worship. They were voluntary sacrifices that the Israelites would offer. And the first of those is the burnt offering. We can read about that in Leviticus chapter 1. Also in chapter 6, a portion of the text there. The burnt offering was an expression of complete devotion to God. Of course, all of these sacrifices had their part in atoning for sin, and we're going to touch on that, obviously, as we go through them. But this sacrifice was designed to represent a person's complete and utter devotion and determination to follow after their God. Unlike the other types of sacrifices that were offered, the burnt offering was completely consumed. With some of these other sacrifices, there would be a portion that would be reserved for the priests to eat, that would be their portion as priests to God for their daily bread. Sometimes, as with the peace offering, even the one offering would partake of a portion of that particular sacrifice. But with the burnt sacrifice, the burnt offering, uh, that was not the case. It was completely consumed. In Leviticus chapter 8, we read about Moses and Aaron uh, completing one of these burnt offerings. Verse 18 there beginning, it says, He brought the ram as the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed it, and he sprinkled the blood all around on the altar, and he cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head, the pieces, and the fat, and he washed the entrails and the legs in water. And Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, as we think about this burnt offering, how was Jesus a fulfillment of the burnt offering? Well, we can notice a number of different things. First of all, he was a male. As you read in the text there, you'll find that the bull or the goat or whatever was brought as this burnt offering had to be a male of the flock. Matthew 1, verse 21 as Joseph was having explained to him by the angel what would happen with Mary and the son that she would bear, says there, she will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, we see, met that requirement. As with the animals that were offered, they had to be without blemish. 
They couldn't have a defective leg or something wrong with their face or missing an eye or something of this nature. They had to be without blemish. And Jesus, of course, was without blemish in a spiritual sense. He was without sin. And that, of course, is what those physical or the physical perfection of those animals was meant to be representative of. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, here speaking of God, it says, God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Of course, with most of these examples, we uh, could go to various different passages to note the same truths, but we're going to, for the sake of time, uh, be looking at just a, a sampling this morning. Jesus was offered voluntarily. Again, this was uh, intrinsic to this type of particular sacrifice. It was not something that had to be done, but it was something that was willingly and voluntarily offered as a means of worship and devotion to God. Jesus himself identified the fact that no one was forcing him to do any of the things that he was doing or would do. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, he says, My father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, notice that, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. And so God was not forcing Jesus against his will to come and die for our sins. It was something that he, of his own free will, like we have free will, did because he loves us and wanted us to be able to have eternal life. Jesus was a substitution. We read there in the text in Leviticus chapter 8 a moment ago where Moses and Aaron were uh, carrying out one of these burnt offerings. You notice it talks about how they laid their hands on the head of that animal. And that was symbolic of the fact that their guilt was being transferred, if you will, to this immoral animal that was without sin. And it was meant to be a substitution in their place. Jesus, of course, fulfilled the same. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Now that word, if you look up the definition, it means an atonement, and to atone for something is to uh, put something in its place, to pay the price or the penalty that is due. And so Jesus was made to be the propitiation for us, the substitute for us, by his blood. Through faith, he says, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the last portion of the text there is explaining that while we know the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin, because those animals had no concept of right or wrong, Jesus, uh, or I should say God, allowed those sacrifices to atone for sin because of what Jesus would ultimately do. 
as our perfect sacrifice. Jesus was slain north of the altar, which is an interesting piece of information. If you read there in the text about the burnt offering, they were to kill the animal on the north side of the altar. And if you look at the map of the city of Jerusalem and see where the temple was, you'll notice that the site of Golgotha, or the place of the skull, uh, which is pictured here, you can actually see in the side of the hill there, uh, where it looks like the, the skull, which is where it gets its name from. Uh, but that is located to the north of the temple, which is where the altar would have been contained. So that bit of information is also interesting to note. And finally, Jesus was wholly consumed. It wasn't like Jesus just gave his arm for us, or gave his legs for us, or had his eyes plucked out for us. He, he gave his all. He was fully consumed in suffering and ultimately death for you and I. In Isaiah 50, in verse 6, speaking prophetically of Christ, I gave my back, he says, to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. In chapter 53, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus was completely offered every aspect of his body and spirit for you and for me. So now we bring our attention to the next of these offerings of worship, these free will offerings, and that would be the grain offering. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 2, in chapter 6, verses 14 through 23, and also it is touched upon in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The grain offering was an offering of thankfulness for God's blessings, his uh, sustaining of life through bread and raiment and shelter, these kinds of things. There were different forms of the grain offering. Uh, it could be fine flour that was mixed with certain uh, spices, or I shouldn't say spices, but uh, fragrances such as frankincense. Uh, there would be oil mixed with it. Uh, it could be in the form of unleavened cakes or roasted grain. Now, as we think about Jesus in fulfilling the grain offering, we know, of course, that Jesus described himself as the bread of life, didn't he? In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them there, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In chapter 12, as he was speaking about his death and subsequent resurrection, he used the Analogy of a grain of wheat. In John 12, verse 23, he said there, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces 
much grain. And so here again we see Jesus using this analogy to describe his own sacrifice for you and I. As the cakes that were offered in the grain offering or the flour or whatever it was, it all had to be anointed with oil. And Jesus was, in a sense, anointed with oil in the sense that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, here notice the language. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We know, of course, that the Spirit came upon him at his baptism there in the Jordan River. And as he went about his ministry, he demonstrated the power of God, the fact that he is and was the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus was without leaven. As the grain offering could not contain any kind of leaven, any kind of yeast, Jesus symbolically fulfilled the same requirement in the fact that, again, he was without sin. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, in describing the confidence we have in being able to go to God's throne through prayer, we do so through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And as it describes him here in verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. His sacrifice was as a sweet-smelling aroma. As we read about these different offerings, especially with the burnt offering and the grain offering, we see that these are described as being to God as this sweet-smelling aroma, as you look there at the text in Leviticus. And Jesus certainly fulfilled that as well. We read in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 that we as Christians are to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Notice, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So again, in all of these details that we read about with these different sacrifices that were offered, we see that Jesus fulfilled those very specific things. And so the final of these offerings of worship was the peace offering which is detailed in Leviticus chapter 3. It's touched upon in chapter 7 as well, verses 11 through 34. The peace offering was an offering of communion with God. It was, in a sense, a celebration of the relationship that was enjoyed by God's people with him. The one who was making the peace offering, as we had mentioned earlier, uh, could also partake of a portion of that particular offering. And so again, as we think about the concept of sharing a meal, we think about that as a time to celebrate uh, relationships with different people. Uh, So it was with this particular peace offering. It was a celebration of the communion that his people have with him. Often it was made at a joyous occasion or in anticipation of God's blessing. And so as we think about Christ through Christ, obviously we have peace, don't we? And we have communion with God. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, as the angels were rejoicing about the fact that Jesus had 
been born into this world. The shepherds beheld them there. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, notice, and goodwill toward men. Jesus came to establish true peace between God and his creation. In Romans 5 and verse 1, we read, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here Paul is making the point about when we partake of the supper that the Lord has instituted. It is a form of celebration of the communion that we have with him through, again, his sacrifice as we remember the price that he paid for our salvation. Verse 16 there of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. We all partake of that one bread. And so we have become a family. We have been united through Christ's sacrifice. Peace has been established. Because of how he suffered for you and I. And so now we come to the last two types of offerings that were given under the law of Moses. And these would be offerings of penitence. These would be offerings that were made when a person recognized or even the nation at at large would recognize that they had sinned against the Lord. And would need to then make correction for those mistakes. And so they would offer one of these two types of offerings of penitence. The first was simply known as the sin offering, as detailed there in Leviticus chapter 4. This was mandatory. Whenever sin was identified, whether it was with the nation as a whole or was with a particular person or one of the rulers, uh, there's different stipulations based upon the situation. But when sin was identified, this sin offering had to be made. The main portion, one of the things that sets the sin offering apart from the others, is that the main portion of the offering was not burned on the altar as with the others, but it was actually taken outside of the camp and burned outside the camp. Leviticus chapter 8, as we had noted earlier, the example of the burnt offering being offered by Moses and Aaron, we see An example here where they offered this sin offering. Verse 14 beginning there. says, He brought the bull for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering, and Moses killed it. And he took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar all around his finger and purified the altar. He poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull, its hide, its flesh, its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Jesus died outside the gate. Again, we had talked about earlier how He had been slain on the north side of the altar. 
symbolically as we think about the geographical location of Golgotha. But that location was also outside of the gates of Jerusalem as well. The Hebrew writer touches on this in Hebrews 13, verse 10 there. says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, notice, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's quite remarkable as you begin to look at all these things and see how how perfect truly Jesus was of a sacrifice for you and I. How he met all of these specific requirements. The imagery of sin being far removed or forgotten is also seen in the scapegoat that was part of the process that took place on the Day of Atonement. We had referred to that at the beginning of the lesson, but as we think about the idea of this sin offering being burned outside of the gates or outside of the camp, we see the same thing is uh, alluded to with the scapegoat that took place, like we said, on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, we can read about this here. Verse 20 there, beginning, it says, When he made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So there were animals that were slaughtered as part of that atonement, but there was also this live goat. And the instruction was, as we read in verse 21, that Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, so similar to what they would have done with these other sacrifices, transferring, if you will, the guilt uh, or the penalty of their sins upon this animal. He shall confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them, notice, on the head of the goat. And notice, he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And so again, All of these things were to physically be representative of the fact that the sin was being removed. The sin was being taken away from those who had been guilty of it. We read in Psalm 103 and verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that, of course, was the writing of the psalmist. But we read also in application of what Jesus accomplished in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. Notice, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will, verse 12, note, Be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Jesus, of course, enacted this covenant that is being described, this new covenant, through his sacrifice on the cross. And so finally, the last offering that we have to consider is the trespass 
offering detailed in Leviticus chapter 5, which runs all the way through into chapter 6 and verse 7, and also is talked about in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The trespass offering related specifically to sins against one's neighbor. And one of the interesting things about the trespass offering is that the person who made this offering to atone for their sin also had to make restitution to the person that they had wronged. So if they had uh, taken money from them and then failed to pay it back or mishandled it in some way, uh, they not only had to make this atoning sacrifice, but they had to restore what they had squandered, plus another 20% was the requirement that God placed with this particular type of offering. Now, as you think about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. Well, his blood brings our balance uh, to zero, doesn't it? But also, he restores to God his lost property. You know, the person that was uh, harmed in regards to a trespass offering, they, they actually came out benefiting because the person who had done wrong would pay them back, but then some, right? So they would actually come out better. And when you think about what Jesus accomplished, not only does he bring our balance to zero, but now he's also restored us to God. And so God has gained something. He's gained something back that he'd lost. One of his creations, made in his image, intended to glorify him, had been lost to sin, and now it has been restored. And see how this all mirrors that trespass offering. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was teaching here a parable, and uh, the overall point of this parable was to get us to think about the mercy we would show one another in light of what God has done for us. But I want us to notice just the first portion, because that more specifically applies to what we're thinking about here with what Jesus did in his sacrifice for us. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, verse 23 there, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment would indeed be made. But the servant therefore fell down before him and said, Master, please have patience with me and I will pay you all. And notice the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. This guy had incurred a debt that, uh, if you do research into 10,000 talents, that was an amount of money that would be near impossible to ever repay based on the average income of people in that day and age. But yet, in his mercy, the king completely wipes that debt away, completely forgives it. And that's what has been done for you and I. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. But yet, God in his mercy has offered us a pathway to forgiveness. And not just partially, but completely. And he's also restored us to a position where we can now fulfill our purpose. Being able to live in such a way that we do what we were designed to do. In Romans 12 and verse 1, Paul writes there and says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
a living sacrifice, that you be holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And it certainly is reasonable that we would offer ourselves to God in light of what he has done for us and the price that has been paid. And Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says there, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what God intended from the beginning, that we would be creatures that would carry out good works, things that would be glorifying to him. And so it is in Christ that we can fulfill that purpose. Realize it. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, speaking of Jesus, says he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. And so when Jesus on the cross uttered that word, the telestai, he indeed had fulfilled all. He had finished all. And so I hope that as we've studied these things, it has deepened our appreciation for how perfect of a sacrifice Jesus truly was and the devotion that we should have towards him as a result. I'd like to conclude by reading a few verses from the book of Hebrews. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, we read there, The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then, would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. I have come to be the realization of what all these things were alluding to, to become truly a perfect sacrifice. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, by fulfilling it, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we can take advantage of that sacrifice, as is explained in Hebrews 5 and verse 9, by rendering obedience to our Savior. It says there that having been perfected, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So this morning, have you obeyed him? Have you followed his plain commands? Have you been baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins, having repented 
so that you can rise and walk in newness of life. If you have not done those things this morning, I hope that you will make that determination. If you are ready to do it, we would ask that you come up to the front at this time. We're about to sing this song of invitation. If you're here and you need prayers or you need to confess sin or whatever it might be, now would be an appropriate time, uh, really a perfect time to make those kinds of corrections in your life. We'd love to assist you in any way that we can. Make your needs know while we stand and while we sing.